Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 48 of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name's Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, please reach out to us. You can find out more information at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. Our guest today is Ann Fletcher. She is the author of Sober for Good and Inside Rehab, The Surprising Truth About Addiction Treatment and How to Get Help That Works. I was really happy to get Ann on the show. I think her book, Inside Rehab, is very telling about addiction treatment. She dives in and goes to several treatment agencies that, uh, and treatment centers to investigate how they did their work and really looked at what was what worked for people, what didn't work, and kind of explored all, all the different options and the way different ways in which you can create a treatment program for yourself. So I definitely recommend this book if you or someone you know or a loved one is looking into addiction treatment and is exploring different options, I would definitely get this book. It gives you a lot of insight into what questions to ask any potential treatment center. So I highly recommend it. You can go to our website. There'll be a link on the page. And um, I think you will get a lot out of the book. So let's go ahead and start our episode with Ann Fletcher. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. And I'm very excited for our guest today. It is Anne Fletcher, the author of a book that uh, I found very informative called Inside Rehab. And you want to introduce yourself? 
Yeah, I'm Ann Fletcher, and I, I think we should give the subtitle of the book, Inside Rehab, and it is The Surprising Truth About Addiction Treatment and How to Get Help That Works, because so many people are lost when they're looking for addiction treatment. So this was my eighth book, and I heard so many horrible stories about addiction treatment from both professionals and uh, lay people that I decided to tackle a book on the subject. Awesome. And, you know, one of the things I, w I wanted you, I've wanted you to come on the podcast for a while because this book that you wrote, The Inside Rehab, really informed a lot of the treatment that we do at our agency. And in reading it, I got a, a lot of insight into the whole rehab industry. Well, and one thing I want to stress is in the book, I call any kind of formal treatment. And not by that, I'm talking about going to a rehab, like a, a place that we think of like Hazelden or Promises. And I'm naming those names because they're some of the rehabs that I visited. I traveled around the country, went coast to coast and visited 15 rehabs of a wide variety, everything from programs that treat celebrities to programs that treat indigent people. But I didn't just treat in, go to inpatient treatment programs. I also went to outpatient programs so I called everything a rehab because it's rehabilitation from a substance use disorder, which is really the preferred term for quote unquote addiction. And we now know that, well, we've known for a long time, but we haven't treated it that way, that substance use disorders fall on the spectrum, mild, moderate, and severe. And we're not really talking about quote unquote addiction until somebody has a severe substance use disorder. And they're usually the people who wind up in treatment. Right. And what I also wanted to ask you as well is what motivated you to write this book? Because it's kind of a, it kind of really looks at this huge industry as a, as a whole. And I, I don't, I mean, it's hard to say like the treat, doing mental health as an industry, but there is this business behind it. And uh, so I kind of want to understand like, how did you start to think about writing this book and how did that kind of come to be? Well, this is really weird. <laughs> I had thought about this book for a long time, but I think what really was the impetus, and nothing like this has ever happened to me before, but I had a dream that I was in rehab, a women's rehab, residential treatment. And although I had struggled with an alcohol problem earlier in my life, I never went to rehab. I'm, I'm a big believer in individual treatment which is an option a lot of people don't think about, particularly if somebody has a less severe drinking problem. But anyway, I had a dream I was in a women's rehab in a little white Johnny, like you wear in a, a hospital. Right, right. And they don't make people wear those in, in any treatment program I saw. But I was going around interviewing women for their treatment story. And I woke up and I said, you know, that's the book I have to write is Inside Rehab. I think we had, we had a different name for it at the time. But anyway, I call, I contacted my agent and she said, that is a book. She often rejects my book, my, my book ideas and just says, that's a magazine article. Right. But anyway, <laughs> I, I contacted my, I had gotten to know Tom McClellan, who is a very prominent person in the field, a psychologist who developed, who was a co-founder co of the Addiction Treatment Institute in Philadelphia which has studied what works and what doesn't work in addiction treatment for his entire career. And I got to know him in writing my first addiction book, Sober for Good, which came out, I think, in 1991. 
about recovery methods, different kinds of recovery methods of 222 people. And I contacted him and said, Tom, for years, had been studying addiction treatment, and we became friendly. And he told me, he was one of the people who told me about all the problems ongoing in addiction treatment. And he would say things like that people put more attention into buying a vacuum cleaner than they do into shopping for an addiction treatment program. Right. That's so true. Yeah, absolutely. And I called him and I said, we got, we got to write this book. I mean, you've been talking to me about this for years. Will you do it with me? And he said, oh, I'd love to. But, and he thought about it for a week and he was just involved in so many research projects. And he said, but I'll be a consultant for it. And if your book makes a million dollars, which I wish I could say it had, um, donate some money to the Institute. So I had a lot of experts like that who were available to me as consultants. And I will say these people are very generous with their time, unpaid time. So they they were really seeing the the problems in the addiction treatment kind of realm and a lot of these things that were going on, which we can talk about more in a little bit. And they were really, they really wanted to help. They really wanted to say, hey, you know, yeah. They did. Absolutely. And they saw this as a conduit to getting the word out um, because a lot of what goes on, much of what goes on in addiction treatment is not based on science. And we've had this science for decades in some cases, and it's not being used. Right. So it took me almost, uh, it was beyond four years to write the book. Wow. And I think that's so true. And when I look at, a, at addiction treatment, one of the things I really liked about your your book and why it really spoke to me is that at our agency, we treat a lot of people who struggle with different addictions. And in my beginning career, when I started this, I worked at another agency. And a lot of times when clients left treatment, it was the refrain was, well, they're just, they just haven't hit bottom yet. And it just never sat with me right. I oh. I didn't, like, that just doesn't feel right. It's like, yes. what did I, this guy wouldn't be, or this woman wouldn't be sitting in front of me if they didn't want some kind of help. So what's going on? Yeah, and I fortunately, I think, I think that attitude in treatment programs is changing, at least somewhat. That idea, that notion, I think, comes more from Alcoholics Anonymous, And really, one of the major goals of treatment should be to help people avoid hitting bottom. And one of the evidence-based techniques is motivational interviewing, which is to help people. People are very ambivalent. You're giving up your lover, which is your drug of choice. And your people are very, of course, ambivalent about giving up something you love for really what becomes the unknown or going back to what you what they perceive as a life that's boring and dull. And motivational in- interviewing is a technique that therapists use to help people work out that ambivalence and to see that the benefits of being sober outweigh the joys or the, the pros of using. And that's a tough one, but you have to have an experienced therapist and well-trained to be able to do that. And many addiction counselors aren't. In a number of states, you don't even have to have a bachelor's degree to be an addiction counselor. And when you think about it, these are people who are the primary caregivers 
for some of the most, one of the most complicated disorders that we know of because many, many of these people have co-occurring psychological problems. And I have a quote from one of my experts, Jeffrey Foote, who want, runs one of the best addiction treatment programs in the country, Center for uh, Motivation and Change in New York. And I believe he's the one who said, we're putting some of the, the people with the most serious disorders in the hands of some of the least trained people. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right. And I, that that's so true. And I, I wonder, I always wonder, like, how did that kind of come to be like this treatment model in the sense of, you know, addiction treatment was, I, I guess, in the beginning, maybe in the 30s was kind of pushed to the side. People didn't know what to do. And so addiction treatment kind of evolved out of its own uh, necessity. It did. But not not backed by um, uh, some science and some uh, not backed by the medical community. It was kind of seen as a moral problem, I think. It was, and it so was. treatment evolved, evolved out of that and not necessarily like as a medical issue. Yep. Back at that time, many people, especially with severe disorders, were put in asylums, mental health asylums. And AA came about, and AA can be wonderful for a lot of people, but one of the problems is that it became AA for everybody. And it's still about 80, 85% of treatment programs involve AA in treatment in some way. We can come back to that. But AA took hold and it there wasn't treatment for people and people got better. A lot of people got better with AA. Not everybody, but certainly not a, a lot of people did not. And we still know, I have a statistic here, that um, it's hard to find a, a good and recent figure, but we found that studies suggest that seven to eight out of 10, uh, okay, that, that's not, that's people who, um, seven to eight out of 10 programs involve AA, but most people drop out. That it suggested in the literature that between 60 to 80% of people with alcohol use disorders encouraged to attend AA while in treatment will stop attending AA in less than a year. So they need to be offered alternatives. But back to the issue of the historical issue is that they started getting better and then they started treating each other and they became the, the counselors in the treatment programs. Nobody wanted to treat them. Psychologists didn't want to treat them, mental health professionals in general. And so this kind of sprang up in, in a vacuum, this treatment system. And then the Minnesota model, which is what's used at Hazelden, grew up and kind of became the model for everybody, which is the 12 steps are the foundation of treatment. And you have counselors, you have medical people involved, you have therapists, but that latter group are, I said the therapists, um, they're better trained certainly than they used to be. But that sprang up again in a vacuum. Right. And if and if someone doesn't kind of jive with that 12 step or doesn't feel right for them, 
they're kind of lost without an alternative. And um, that's what's happened a lot to when clients come and see me is they've gone into treatment and the the 12-step model just doesn't, it doesn't work for them. It doesn't resonate and they have a hard time finding anything else. Like uh, it's more difficult. I mean, it, that's opening up and I, that's changing, but yeah, definitely. But it's the, it's the still the notion is in treatment, 12-step based treatment, that you have failed, you the patient have failed if you if the 12 steps are not working for you. And I can't really think of other medical disorders where the patient is blamed if the treatment fails them. If my, you know, my blood pressure went up recently, I'm not overweight. I I said told you I was eating a cookie while I was getting ready. My eating habits are not always perfect, but I was, I have never been blamed by my doctor that my blood pressure, this is your fault. This is your fault because you, I exercise, you know, but even for somebody who doesn't follow the lifestyle that I follow to try to keep my blood pressure down, the, the doctor has never once suggested this is your fault. He, he said to me, let's think about things that might be causing this. And it was collaborative. And care is usually in a traditional program, not collaborative, and the patient is often blamed for the failure. And then they keep going back to the same kind of program over and over again. Well, the doctor was not going to keep me exactly on the same strategy for regime for my blood pressure. He changed it. And the treatment is not changed when the patient has has a recurrence, which I prefer to the word relapse. Right. Okay. So they have a recurrence and then they're kind of like pushed back into the same system again. Yep. And like, and what do you think happens? <laughs> right. And then the treatment doesn't work again and they're kind of stuck and they kind of repeat that over yep. and over again and kind of go in the same direction. Yep. Now, some people, it's that they just weren't ready the first time around and the second time they go back, even if it is the same program or type of program. They will get it. NAA does work for them and that program will work. But I heard, I heard often that it was the being pushed into something that just didn't work for them. And it's not just AA. It's, it's the fact that so much of it, most of it is group based treatment. Mm -hmm. I figured out that one of the things that floored me at some of the very expensive programs that people think are the cream of the crop. Eight hours a day were spent in groups and not in one-on-one -on -one treatment. There were only a few hours at the at most of one-on-one -on -one treatment. And most of that would be with an addiction counselor, not a psychologist or a physician or a psychiatrist. And I thought, man, if I were paying $30,000 for one of my kids to go to one of these places, I would have no idea as a person not familiar with this, that they were sitting around in a group. And, and a lot of what was going on in the group was not evidence-based. One program, you did a lot of peer groups where there wasn't even a professional in the room. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of shocking. It is shocking. So when you started writing this book and, and you started going into the, to the rehabs, what was, what was that like? What was that process like? Were, were some of these rehabs open to that or were some of them guarded? Or I mean, you're really starting to kind of explore the whole process and, and kind of challenge the status quo. Well, I think this does show one way that rehabs are changing. You know, sober for good kind of 
took on the 12 steps. Not that it was anti, my first book, Mm -hmm. not that it was anti the 12 steps, but that it suggested that there was another way because more than half of the people in the book, it wasn't a random sample because I just heard from more AA people because there are more out there who had recovered with AA. The alternatives, women for sobriety, smart recovery. At the time, there was secular organizations for sobriety. There aren't many of those left. Life ring, moderation management, which is for people who don't have a serious alcohol use disorder. Right. Rational recovery, yeah. Yeah, rational recovery. But they, a lot of them, I don't think liked me a lot (laughs) because of me just suggesting that there was another way to do it. Right. But when I wrote this book, I was amazed. Um, In fact, Tom McClellan said to me, Hazelden will never let you in. Well, they did. And, you know, he said, I can help you get into some of these places. But he goes, I don't think I can help you there. Well, they were very willingly said yes. And they allowed me to sit in on a women's floor, the women are divided into different units for almost a week. Karen, which is the kind of the Hazelden of the East Coast, it's a very large C-A-R-O-N. They allowed me to sit in on some adolescent treatment. Of course, I had to be very careful, you know, about confidentiality and sign forms and whatnot. And I was surprised at the reception I received. And I did tell them going into it, I am going to hear from people who love your program and feel that it saved their lives, but I'm also going to hear from people who hated your program. And I am going to tell both kinds of stories. So I was very upfront with them about that, and they they understood that. So one of the things that really impressed me was Hazelden. I, I asked for clients to interview from the programs and particularly from the floors that I visited. And Hazelden did not hand pick the people like we're going to send you the best people. They just sent a letter out to the women who were there and allowed the ones anybody could respond. And I, for instance, heard from a woman who she, she said, I drank the Kool-Aid when I was there and I got out and I, she had all questioned all of it. Right. Right. She said she didn't buy it after she got out. And then I heard from other people who really liked it. So they were really open to let you kind of look at this process and yes. kind of see it, which is, that's very encouraging to see that, for it to be open like that and be able to kind of look in and, and see it and look at it with uh, more of a kind of a critical eye and say, what's working here, what's not working here. That's pretty exciting. Yes, and I give them a lot of credit for that. Yeah, definitely. So as you started to do this and you started to kind of, move through this process of getting this information? What were some of your insights that you started to find? Oh, I, I don't even know where to begin. You know, as I said, a lot of it was the, the group treatment, you know, and one size certainly doesn't fit all. The ubiquity of AA throughout them, even when they say, I, I had people tell me, I called this place and said that it wasn't 12-step based. I got there, I found out that it was. Most places say that they're using scientifically backed treatment approaches, and they are to some extent, but they're really not, and they're not done according to protocol that is used in, it's called fidelity, that's used in the scientific literature. They're using a lot of educational films and lectures, which have been shown to be among the least effective strategies. There is, well, we know this from SAMHSA's the big government agency that studies addiction and or that deals with substance use and mental health, that very few addiction treatment programs are using medications that are helpful for substance use disorders. 
Fortunately, I think now with the opioid crisis, more and more of them are using Suboxone, buprenorphine, um, because it's getting a lot of publicity and that helps people with opioid addictions. So I, you know, those are, those are some, just some of the observations. Right. And so it was kind of, it's um, hard for these treatment programs to put all these things in place. That can be really challenging. It can, but again, some of them are charging an awful lot of money and some of the best treatment. One important thing is that quality does not correlate with the amount of money that you spend. Some of the best treatment I saw in small programs, there was one program, um, I grew up outside of Philadelphia and one of the, there was a program in an area of Philadelphia that that I wasn't allowed to set foot in this particular area. And they had an incredible program where they rehabilitated people, not just from their mental health issues and substance issues, but they had a barber shop where they could, people could get a haircut, but they also could learn to become a barber. The p- patients worked in the cafeteria. They had their own radio station and they interviewed me so that they could they could learn to become a radio host. They had really interesting things going on for the patients to do. So it was fascinating. They used college resources in the area so that people could cut, they had a optometry school or ophthalmology department come in and people got glasses because you can't function in life very well and get a job if you can't see, right. you can't see well. Right. So those kinds of things. Again, I didn't mention that I worked in an addiction treatment program for three years after the book was done. I don't have um, certification, but I certainly have a lot of knowledge. And I was hired as an educator to work in a harm reduction program where we don't they did not, it's called Minnesota Alternatives. I drove a 90 minute, it was a, about a three hour round trip for me to go up there and work 20 hours a week because I wanted some experience in the field. And harm reduction is basically meeting the patient where they're at because many people are not ready to change. And many of these people had been through these programs and they were they were beaten down by the system. Right, and yeah, and like even just to kind of the abstinence model is a very U.S. kind of construct. A lot of a lot of European treatment in Europe it does take this kind of harm reduction approach, but this abstinence model, yeah, definitely comes out of, of U.S. treatment. So we were very happy if a patient switched from using opioids to smoke smoking marijuana, right, or yeah. even drinking alcohol, because alcohol is so much more harmful and dangerous, you know, harmful for to the body. Than marijuana, right? Or if we could get them to cut their alcohol use in half, that's harm reduction, right? To get it down to a manageable level where it's not creating as much uh, of that pain in their life, right. being able to do that, and if they can do that, that's not a that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? And lastly, I had some firsthand. Well, I guess it would be secondhand, but I had a child after the book came out, a young adult child who actually ha- had experience of had a severe substance use disorder related to severe co-occurring mental health problems that had been undiagnosed who went to some of these rehabs and it affirmed every everything I said in the book wow. unfortunately right so yeah it's 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 a tough one the good news is i think that things are getting better they are slowly changing there is, in every chapter, there is something for the reader about what to do. 
given the situation, here are things to look for, here's how you find a good rehab. And the appendix is a consumer checklist for checking out rehabs. Here are the things to look for, here are the questions to ask. You couldn't possibly ask all of them, I think it would be tough, but you could pick the ones that are important for you. And there's also a chapter for parents of adolescents who need some kind of help. And where where do you start? Right. And I think that's really, really important. Oh, yeah. One of the things I loved about your book, Inside Rehab, is that it is kind of an informative guide to getting treatment for a lot of people who contact me and they're they're like, you know, where do I go? Send me here. You know, it's like, say, go get this book. If you can, read it, you know, get some of the principles out of it. And then when you go looking for a rehab, ask these questions that are important, at least to help you make sure that it's the best fit for you or the person you love. Well, thank you. And that, that is what I, that was, that was one of the goals was to not just tear rehab apart, but to also offer constructive advice and also to highlight some programs that are really good, which I do. And to the last chapter has some also advice from experts in the field about what, what they think good treatment should look like. And so I thought that was really important was to also put a positive spin on things as well. Yeah. And I think your book does kind of offer one of the things that I've been able to use it for in our agency is to really ask those tough questions. How are we providing the best care? A lot of times we do things because that's how they were done. And is this really helpful? How do we measure that? How do we adjust it if it's not? And how do we be flexible for each client that comes in the door? and to kind of tailor treatment to what it is they they need. This works for this person, but it doesn't work for that person. So, all right, let's stop this. Let's go do that. <laughs> you know, let's try it. it. It reminds me of an anecdote. One patient at a very prestigious rehab said to me, I looked around at night and everybody was doing the same homework. So there really is often failure to individualize. Right. And and one thing I should mention, uh, anecdotes, the book is filled with stories. Every book opens with a story of somebody who is kind of the epitome of, her story is the epitome, his or her, of the issues that are being brought up in that chapter, whether it's, there's a chapter on the financial toll, or the, the I forget what I titled the chapter, but it's looking at the toll that it takes fi- financially. But in that chapter, I also address the emotional toll that rehab takes on the family. And I had a number of people die while I was writing the book because this, this is a deadly, if you want to call it a disease, disorder, whatever, it, it kills people. Yeah. You know, this is, this is serious business. Definitely. And the, that is the reason why we put our daughter in rehab. Um, I, there is no evidence that residential treatment is any better in terms of outcomes than outpatient programs. But sometimes you need to put somebody in a place to save their lives. And Definitely. that was one reason why we made that choice. Yeah, and it's, and it's being able to look at all those different options and kind of adjust it for each person that comes in. And I think that's a challenge for the you know, the addiction field, but it, it, it sounds hopeful. You know, I, I'm kind of hopeful because I am seeing these changes start to take place in the addiction field where 
you know, a lot of these treatment agencies are being held to very high standards of, of care. And I, I think it is shifting and I think it is, it is getting better. I mean, we need it to keep getting better, but I'm hopeful. I, I'm hopeful too, I, but I think, you know, one of the most important ways that we can change the things that are going on is under consumer pressure, consumer demand. I'm not going to take, this is not what I want. I'm not going to put up with this. Let's say that a patient is, I asked, this was one of the questions I asked them. What, what if a patient doesn't like his or her counselor? Can he or she switch? Well, if they tell you no, I would not choose that program because we know that one of the most important factors in, cha- in change and the way people change, if not the most impa- important factor is called therapeutic alliance. Do you get along with the person? Do you have a good relationship with that person? If you don't like them, you know, my daughter was put with somebody, a very strong-willed patient was put with somebody who was a very strong-willed, you're going to do it my way, therapist. That does not work. And it didn't. <laughs> so, yeah. And you got to like, find like, okay, this isn't working. And you got to be able to, to measure that. I did another interview with Scott Miller, who does the feedback informed treatment protocol. And we incorporate that here. And so like, you can look, if someone's not making progress with their therapist by about the sixth session, the research shows that they're not going to make progress with that therapist. Oh, that's a good figure. Yeah. So that means we got to find you another therapist. And it's not necessarily the therapist's skill. It's just the relationship isn't there and it's okay. It didn't click. 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 And so let's find you somebody else. Because if we're not, if we're not making progress by the sixth session, uh, we need to do something different. And maybe I'm not the right therapist. I'm, you yeah. know, that's another number I like. And I don't know that it's based on science, but it, I, I think it's a reasonable one to the one thing that's good about AA. Well, there are many things that are, that can be good about it. But then again, it depends on the person is that it, you can find a meeting almost anywhere, any time of day. And I tried it in the beginning and it wasn't for me, but sometimes just going to be with other people who have a similar problem can be, it's, it's support. And, and then something happened at a meeting that really upset me and I decided never to go again. But anyway, the Bill Miller, William Miller, who is a renowned researcher in this field, has a new edition and I highly recommend this book. It's Treatment, I believe it's called Treatment for Professionals. I probably lent my copy. I'm looking around for it. It's a Treatment for Professionals and a new edition is coming out with, I think he told me five new chapters. And one of his suggestions in that, in the first edition, I don't know if he'll make the same one in the second, and it's co-authored with two other authors, uh, is that when, if you're a therapist, um, since AA is out there, ask people to try it. And he said, but say three times, just try it for me three times. And if you don't like it after that, then you don't need to go. So, and you could say that about any group. Now, if it were me, I, unfortunately, many of these alternatives are not available. I live in a university town in rural Minnesota, but it's a big university. We do not have any alternatives to AA here. We did for a while, but they, it's, it's a lot of responsibility for somebody to run a group and not get paid for it. But our only support groups are Alcoholics Anonymous and, and uh, Narcotics Anonymous meetings. So try three times. 
Yeah, and I, I kind of think that the same thing. If that works for you and you can get some support and just be around other people who understand, sometimes that's an, that's enough just to help you get help from the other stuff, you know, get that support, do it how you, you need to do it and uh, try it and see what happens, definitely. Or it might just get you started. It might just get you started. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you wanna what would you wanna as we kind of come to the the end here? What would you want to, if anybody's listening to this, what would you want to tell them? What piece of wisdom would you want to kind of give to them? First, I I guess for me, if somebody has somebody you love or you have a substance use disorder and you want to get help, don't be ashamed about it because there are a lot of us out there. Support can come in many forms. And I would say don't have the knee jerk reaction that you have to go to rehab. And also be aware that far more people get help from, I mean, the the numbers are astounding. I don't have them memorized from outpatient programs than residential treatment. Television makes us think that in movies that everybody goes to a residential rehab. But I personally, unless this is a severe, severe substance use disorder or somebody's life is threatened or they need to go to detox, People with severe substance use disorders are just the tip of the iceberg. Far more people have mild to moderate problems. And I would start, if it were me, with an individual therapist who is not tied to a treatment program, this individual therapist who has some expertise with substance use disorders. And I can think in rural Minnesota, in my small city, there are several. I would go to them for an assessment or and you may work with them, but that is where I would start before I jump right into addiction treatment. They don't have a vested interest in admitting you to your to a rehab. If you go to a rehab for an assessment, the one client said, You're 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 already in. You're already in. And most therapists don't have a vested interest in treating you because they usually have a long waiting list. So I guess those would be my parting words. I think that's great. So how how can people get more information? If they want more information about this, how can they find you? Where can they go? I do have a website. It's www.ann, with an E, Ann, M as in Margaret, Fletcher, F-L-E-T-C-H-E-R.com. And certainly the book is available on the major book websites like Amazon and Barnes and Noble, that sort of thing. Awesome. I'll link all that too in the show notes so people can can uh, go to the show notes and get all that information as well and and find out more information about you. And, and if they want more information about Inside Rehab, I definitely highly recommend reading it. I think it's a great book. So, And thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. I really appreciate your time and being here. Thank you. And I, I should also mention for more updated information, because, you know, every book is out of is, is a little bit out of date by the time it's published, <laughs> because it, right. it takes so long right. to get it out. I write a regular column for rehabs.com. It's called ProTalk. And that I have a lot of articles. I've written a ton about the opioid crisis. A lot of it is about how we've overreacted to it. And people have been hurt who have chronic pain because they can't get the medications they need. Well, I've addressed it from many angles. But anyway, I have a lot of articles there that are more timely even than the book. 
about all kinds of different subjects, mindfulness, that kind of thing. Great. I'll definitely put that on a link so everybody can access it and find it. And, and once again, Anne, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. The show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 48. I will also include a link to the book. If you're thinking of purchasing it, please click on that link and uh, help support the Addicted Mind podcast. All right, everyone. Until next week, I hope each and every one of you have a wonderful day. Madeline and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how-to for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.